0: between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen and he resolves to settle it to bring peace to the situation and he picks, he lets Lot pick where uh, he would like to go and then he trusts God for the land that God would, would, would give to Abram to sojourn in and, and Lot sees through the eyes of his own eyes and he, he prospers, he sees the prosperous land of the Jordan River Valley and chooses to settle over there near the wicked city of Sodom. He's going to pitch his tents outside of Sodom but Abram sees Through eyes that have been lifted up by God. And the Lord assures Abram of his promised land. Canaan, as far as Abraham can see, remember, in every direction. And the Lord assures Abram of his promised offspring. So numerous that they can't be counted. So numerous they're like the dust of the earth and can't be counted. So the promises of God for Abram to be a father of a great nation, which will inhabit a rich land, are are taking shape in chapter 13. Abram is beginning to live in belief of these promises, and we the readers are becoming convinced that these two promises are going to come true as well. But how will all of this turn out to be for the good of all the families of the earth? The third promise. The third blessing has yet to be made clear. How will Abram, more importantly, Abram's seed, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, bless all the families of the earth? See, chapter 14 answers that question. I love this chapter. It's fun. It's exciting. It it reminds me of like really good Western movies, uh, really good World War II movies, you know, the, the black and white movies I grew up on as a kid, you know, with armies marching and enemies defeated and all kinds of wonderful things taking place. It's kind of that kind of chapter. And we see a new side of Abram, Abram the rescuer will point us to Jesus the Redeemer. And, and there's this brand new surprise character, Melchizedek. He will also reveal truths about Jesus, our, our king and our great high priest. So there's a lot here for us to learn about, about three things. The sovereignty of God in our world today, Christ's current active plundering of souls through his church, and the discipline We have to reject temptation and to worship God alone and openly. Those are wonderful things for us today. When this took place in Abram's life around 4,000 years ago. So I hope you'll follow along in the sermon outline provided for you in the bulletin. You'll see this theme. Jesus is the seed of Abram who plunders us from captivity to sin, death, and the devil. And blesses us with his righteousness. Let me go ahead and read Chapter 14 of Genesis. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elaser, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Keterleomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keter Leomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and Emim, and sheva kiriathaim and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El-Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazan-Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Keterleomar of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks at Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkel, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Leomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High." I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschel, and Mamre take their share. This is the really exciting word of the Lord. So Abram seems to be minding his own business, sojourning over there near Hebron when he's suddenly thrust onto the stage of international geopolitics. He's about to get pulled into a major armed conflict. The first four kings are all men from the region of Mesopotamia. They're north and east of Canaan. And they're all in league with one another. They have this confederacy together of four nations. We don't know a lot about them. While, I've got my, while I'm displaying the map of the Old Testament that you're looking for, uh, so to the north and east is Mesopotamia where the four kings have come from. And down here to the south and to the west is Canaan. Okay, and the and the Jordan River Valley. So so up here's Mesopotamia, down here's Canaan, and sort of in between them is a vertical line made up of three things. There's the Sea of Gennesaret or Galilee, and down here's the bigger sea, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, Sedim as it's referred to here, and in between is the Jordan River. Okay, so, so we kind of have a slash and then we have Canaan down over here, and, and these, that's where the five kings are going to be, and, and the four kings up here from Mesopotamia. Amraphel is king of Shinar. Shinar is the plain on which they built the city of Babel. Remember? We've heard that before. And the last leader of Babel that we heard about was Nimrod, the mighty hunter. So they're kind of from hardy stock. We don't know anything about Ariok, king of Elastor. The leader of the four kings is Keterleomar, king of Elam. So he's the, he's the biggest and baddest of the group. And Tidal is the king of Goyim. Goyim means nations. So Tidal, it seems, uh, has, a, has kind of a, a, an empire of smaller nations within Mesopotamia. And these four kings have formed a powerful confederation. And together, they rule over the less powerful city-states of Canaan. For the last 12 years, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, that's Zoar. So Zoar is kind of the southernmost city, kind of near Egypt. They've had this treaty under Keterleomar. Now, now, why would they have this treaty? Well, these, these tribes, these kings in the northeast, in Mesopotamia, have, uh, have set themselves up as protectorate over them because they'd like some of their resources. Mesopotamia guys are warriors, but they don't have any metal ore. They don't have anything to build weapons with or construction with, and so they want what they've got, and so they force themselves upon them, and, and the, the Canaanite kings have to pay tribute to the more powerful Mesopotamian kings. So so leomar is motivated economically and politically to maintain this treaty that the five southern kings want out of. Well, in the thirteenth year of the treaty. They rebel. They're not going to send them any more tribute at all. And it takes, it takes a little time for time to travel and things to happen. So in the 14th year, Keter Leomar leads the four-king alliance from Mesopotamia to suppress the revolt of the five kings to the south. And on their way to Sodom to meet the five kings, they destroy several other peoples on the way. That's who these, that's who these other folk are. They, they're a marauding horde. They're raiding The Rephaim and the Zuzim and the Memmim and the Horites defeating them and plundering on their way down this king's highway that runs parallel to the Jordan River. And they get all the way down to the south and then they turn back up north and they take over the the lands of the Amalekites and the Amorites. And you recognize those nations from the book of Joshua because Israel will have have to battle them to get over to the Jordan River to enter into the promised land and Keterleomar and his fierce fourth are just cutting through these city-states like a hot knife through butter. Nothing can stop them. They're unstoppable. Only now do they approach the Valley of Sidim, which is the southern tip of the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, where they meet the armies of the five kings led by the king of Sodom. This is kind of the battle we were waiting for. And there's, there's no description of it. There's no description of it because they're just... There just, wasn't, there just wasn't much of a much of a battle, kind of like there wasn't much of a game in a few of yesterday's college football games. Just, you know, 43 to zip. You know, it was kind of like that. There's no description of the clash of arms. All we're told is that the five kings and their armies fled. That was the result of Keter Leomar entering the area, as if the outcome was a foregone conclusion. There's no way that the five were going to stand up to the four. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into deep tar pits, which, which by the way, doesn't mean they died. They may have fallen and died. They may have let themselves in and hid there. All the rest of their armies ran for the hills, ran for their lives. So Kedar leomar and his armies, they just, they just marched through the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and plunder all that they want of people and of things, including... Lot and his people and his things." That's the key point of this entire military account. That's the key point. They took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. It's the key sentence in the whole account. Moses recorded all of that, all of those kings, all of those lands, all of that battle all of the far-ranging, big-picture, geopolitical events that the world's focused on in order to point us to one little-known wanderer named Abram. Keter, Leomar, and Bera, and the battle in the Valley of Sidim appear in the Bible not because they are important movers and shakers who have God's attention. No, they appear in the Bible only because... They happen to merely be the lead-in to the big story of Abram. All these kings and armies or consequential events are here just to provide a setting for what God is going to do through his chosen man, Abram. It's the only reason they're there. This is not unusual in the Bible. To see all the massive things on the world stage Inverted because something very, very small is what God's really put his attention on. You know, one commentator writes, you have world history and you have significant history. And the latter, significant history, revolves around the people of God. That is Abraham's seed. They are the main show and the head knockers of this age are simply the background for this show. You know, here's here's another example of God's focused attention on Abram's seed in Luke chapter 2. The beginning of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. You probably recognize these words. You probably recognize these world events. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Did you hear hear that? All the world is affected by this census. Caesar Augustus himself has ordered it. It happened when Quirinius was governor. Everybody knows Quirinius. We know exactly when that was. Quirinius is a big guy, important guy. Surely God's attention is on the big things being done by big people in his big world. No. Caesar and world events are merely a background. God's attention is on Abram's seed, the child in Mary's womb. So what does this mean 4,000 years later? I'm going to ask that question three times because we're we're reading about stuff that happened so long ago. It's relevant to ask, is it relevant? Why do I care? What's it matter now? Should you care? I think you should care because the Bible's view corrects our view of God's view. He is not impressed by the movers and the shakers of this world. He is not distracted by viral videos, retweets, and headline news. Yes, he is sovereign over all people and all events, and he does know everything. But Jesus says his eye is on the sparrow. The right perspective is that God's attention is always on Abram's family. God's focus and attention is always on his people. What matters to God is what happens to God's people, what happens to God's church, what happens to you. That makes it relevant. Abram fights and he defeats his enemy, doesn't he? Let me pick up in verse 13. Let me just reread this. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. By the way, that's the first time the word Hebrew appears. In Scripture, Abram's just kind of known as this, this kind of people, the Hebrews, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus, Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram hears that Lot's been taken captive. And we would understand if Abram said, oh, I hate that for Lot. That's that's some pretty bad news about my extended family, those relations over there to the east. That's really unfortunate. But, but Lot's his own man, and it's really not my problem. We, we would be okay with Abram saying that. We learn that Lot was not just near Sodom. Lot was actually living in Sodom when Kederle Omar came. See, but Abram doesn't think that at all. Abram sees Lot as his kinsman. You know, Abram, Abram acted, they separated to keep peace so that they wouldn't be at war with one another. It's, he's his kinsman, his family, his responsibility. Lot's the brethren. Abram doesn't even have to think about his commitment to Lot. He acts almost instinctively to rescue Lot from these four kings of Mesopotamia. Now Abram has 318 trained fighting men of his own which is, is kind of impressive, if he's got 318 trained fighting men, he, he must have a pretty big, pretty big group with him. I mean, he's, he's, kind of a, he's kind of a big deal, at least in his little camp. But his friends, the three Amorite brothers, Mamre, Eshkel, and Aner, they join him. I mean, that shows their commitment to one another, to Abraham, doesn't it? The Lord has promised to bless those who bless Abram. And for whatever reason, these three have found Abram to be a stand-up guy. And if they've blessed Abram with their friendship, God has blessed them, hasn't He? So they've linked arms together in peace, and now they're actually going to link arms together in war. Still, these four kings have blown through city after city, defeated the combined armies of five kings, they're a fierce, unstoppable, marauding force that Abram is going to confront with 318 of his own men. Even with his friends, commentators think Abram is still outnumbered 10 to 1 at least. The first thing Abram has to do is run 120 miles from Hebron to Dan, chasing after this army. And then when he gets there, he waits till night and he splits his force and he mounts a surprise attack in the darkness and his little force defeats the armies of the four kings. But Abram has yet to accomplish his military objective. You remember what it is. You see, the marauders, they take flight. They're still carrying as much as of what they could of, of what they'd plundered. Heading back to Mesopotamia. So Abram chases them, running and fighting another 60 miles to north of Damascus until he recovers all of their plunder, people and possessions, including Lot and Lot's people and Lot's stuff. See, Abram has risked everything to fight and defeat his enemy and plunder the souls of his kinsmen from captivity. Do you see that? Abram has risked everything, even his life and the life of his friends, to fight to defeat his enemy and plunder the souls of his kinsmen from captivity. It's always easy for us to read history and say, well, I knew the story was always going to be that way. Abram didn't. Abram took up sword and began running, and fighting to win Lot back. So what's that mean 4,000 years later? What does that that mean to us today? You see, it's interesting because Scripture presents this pattern in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Think about this. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, David, King David, leads 400 men against the greater Amalekite army to rescue his people who had been taken captive. Sounds familiar. He risks everything to defeat God's enemy and plunder them of the souls of God's people to bring them back home. In Judges chapter 7, Gideon. Gideon leads 300 men against the greater Midianite army to rescue Israel from captivity. Sounds familiar. He risks everything to defeat God's enemy and plunder them, the souls of God's people, to rescue them. In Abram, Gideon and David, we see a pattern of a conquering hero who puts his life on the line to rescue his own people who have been taken captive by a formidable foe. So fast forward 2,000 years from Abram to the time of the gospel. Fast forward 2,000 years to Mark chapter 4 or, or Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus explains his earthly ministry in a parable. And he tells the Pharisees that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Makes sense, doesn't it? You see, Jesus is the stronger man who has bound the devil and is now plundering his house of Saul. Rescuing them from captivity. Now fast forward from the Gospels to our day 2,000 years later. Today, Christ, through his Gospel-proclaiming church, is still plundering souls. He's still saving sinners. We proclaim the Gospel. The Holy Spirit plunders souls. We've been commissioned to tell captive souls that Jesus has defeated our enemies of sin and death, and through faith in him the Spirit transfers them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Do you believe that? Are you the devil's captive, held in darkness and under the power of sin, living in the fear of death? Or have you believed in Jesus, who fought on the cross to defeat your enemies of sin death and the devil and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. See, 4,000 years after Abram's rescue mission, Abram's seed, the Savior, Jesus, is still plundering souls. Which means that today is the day of salvation for you if you will believe in Him. Today. Not the day 4,000 years ago. Today. Nothing could be more relevant for you than to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not already. Let him take you home. Abram's seed is our righteous king and priest. That's Jesus. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14, beginning of verse 17. I'll just read these verses again. So after his return from the defeat of Keter-Leomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me persons, but you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will not take anything but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their shares." So on his way home, on his way home from north of Damascus, in the King's Valley, which is probably the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem, so he's he's traveling down south, gets gets to the Kidron Valley near Jerusalem, he's going to go west, back to Hebron, and and, and he's met there by King of Sodom. The King of Sodom apparently has climbed out of the tar pit, taken a shower, gone out to meet Abram, in the valley, and he offers him the spoils of war. He's gone out to honor him and thank him because he's the conquering hero, right? Moses means us to see that this is a great temptation to Abram. There's a great temptation here. Will he accept the honors of Sodom? Will he accept payment? from these wicked people for the return of their people? Will he receive the blessing and status from among the unrighteous? Just then, a second king appears as if out of nowhere. I say that because he has no genealogy. I don't know if you realize this, but every person we've read about so far in in Genesis, we know where they came from. They've come from a line. They've come from a genealogy. This king's only reference point is God Most High. He has no human reference point. And as quickly as he appears in Scripture, he disappears again. He's the king of Salem, better known as Jerusalem. That word Salem is closely tied to the word shalom, peace. So he's the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem. And his name is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. So Abram is met by two kings, the king of Sodom, who's the king of wickedness, and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. But more is revealed about this Melchizedek in what he does rather than what he's called. You see, he serves the Lord Most High as a priest. Moses tells us, Lord God Most High. That's Abram's God. There is in Canaan someone other than Abram who believes and serves God. Melchizedek serves God as a priest, and he he comes out to serve Abram as a priest. He pronounces a priestly blessing on Abram. And he gives thanks to God for delivering Abram's enemies into his hands. How did Abram and 318 men wipe out the armies of the four kings? God did it. God saw to it. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abraham. And our antennas go up, don't they? He brings out bread and wine, which it's interesting. You, You want to think forward, don't you, to the Passover and to the Lord's Supper table. I want you to think backward for a minute. So far in Genesis, bread and wine are associated with curses. Bread is associated with the curse surrounding Adam, who will now have to toil to make bread to eat. And wine is associated with the curse surrounding Noah. Noah got drunk on wine, which led to the curse of Canaan. But here in Canaan, a land that will be redeemed, we see these elements of bread and wine being redeemed. They're no longer associated with a curse. Now they're associated with a blessing. And after that, they will come to symbolize the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ after... They symbolize the blood of the Lamb at the Passover. They'll symbolize the body and blood of Christ who rescues his people from bondage to sin and death. You see, Abram is blessed by this priest-king. Now, that's, that's very unique. The offices of priest and king are never put together in Israel. They're never put together in Israel's history. They don't go together. So, so Melchizedek's unique. He's mentioned Only one other time in the Old Testament, in Psalm 110, which is a messianic song, meaning that it points to Jesus the Messiah. And in it, David's God appoints David's Lord to be king. That's Jesus. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are the king. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so God appoints Jesus to be King And priest. Because he looks like Melchizedek, who's also king and priest. He's after that order. And and as as God's priest king, the psalm goes on to say, Jesus will execute God's judgment on earth by shattering kings and shattering chiefs. And those phrases, those words, strongly echo Genesis chapter 3.15, where God promises the seed of the woman who will shatter or crush the serpent's head. So Melchizedek's priest-king rule points to Jesus' priest-king rule, which is found only one other place in Scripture, and that's in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews uses Psalm 110 to declare that Jesus is God's priest-king after the, order of, after the priestly order of Melchizedek, meaning that Jesus has a better priesthood than Aaron and all of the Aaronic priests throughout the Old Testament. Priests in the line of Aaron had to suffer many sacrifices over and over and over and over, the writer of Hebrews says. And there were many priests because this went on for generations. And so priests die and they have to be replaced by the next generation of priests. Many, many, many sacrifices, many, many, many priests. But Jesus' priesthood is the only priesthood in the line of Melchizedek pointing to its eternality. Jesus is both the once-for-all sacrifice for sin and the once for all high priest to God. Listen, God has promised Abram that he would be a blessing. Abram blessed Lot by rescuing him. Abram's offspring, Abram's seed, who is Jesus, is God's priest king will bless all the peoples of the earth by defeating their enemies of sin, death, and the devil. By his sin-atoning sacrifices as a priest on the cross, giving them his righteousness to bringing them peace with God. Jesus is God's most high priest king, bringing peace and righteousness. He's the blessing. He's the promised blessing. How is it that Abram and his seed will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth? This is how. Through Christ who rescues sinners and becomes their priest and king. What does that mean 4,000 years later? You know, this is a tough crowd. you always wanting to know what this means now. How does this matter? It's a good question to ask. You see, Abram is met by two kings, one from Sodom who represents the world and the things in the world, and one from God Most High who represents peace and righteousness. The king of Sodom speaks out, doesn't he? He wants to establish his presence. Here comes the conquering hero, but the, the king of Sodom wants to come out and be king. He wants to establish his presence. He wants to establish his authority over Abram, and he offers Abram all this stuff. I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to, I'm going to reward you with the spoils of war. You can keep that stuff, Abram, but he wants to keep the people for himself. I think that means he even wants Lot back. But Abram lifts his hand, doesn't he? Abram lifts his hand on the spot in direct response to this temptation. He he didn't promise this beforehand. The king of Sodom speaks, and Abram lifts his hand to God Most High, the Lord. And he pledges himself to God Most High, who alone is the possessor of all his creation, heaven and earth. In other words, it's not yours to give. It's his to give. I pledge myself to the Lord God most high who possesses heaven and earth. He rejects the king of wickedness. He rejects the world and the things in the world. He, he, he says, you know, both thread and sandal strap. A thread is thin. A sandal strap is thick. I won't take anything from you, whether it's thick or thin or anything in between. I won't take anything from you. I won't receive your blessing, Sodom. And instead, Abram gives a tenth. He gives a tithe of all that he has plundered, including what formerly belonged to the king of Sodom. He gives it to God. He gives it to to Melchizedek, the king of peace and righteousness. See, here's the link. All of Abram's people, everyone who believes in Jesus by faith, all of Abram's people will face the same temptation That Abram's facing here. That means you. The temptation to come under the world's influence. The temptation to settle for the world's blessing. Or to raise your hand and declare allegiance to God Most High and receive His blessing. And His blessing alone and be satisfied with it. It happened to Abram there. It's happening to you now in your life daily. You want to say no to sin? Let's work through one example. Let's work through one example. It's it's close to Abram. So, So, what particular sin is Sodom known for anyway? Sexual sin. What particular fixation does our culture have? Sexual sin. When you, who are a child of Abram by faith in the promise, are tempted to sexual sin, what should you do? What should you do when the king of Sodom rewards you for seeing things the world's way? And he says, take and enjoy and come back for more. Lift your hand. Lift your hand to the Lord. Pledge allegiance to the king of righteousness. Declare out loud, I will not take thread or sandal strap of your wickedness that leads to death. I don't care if you're walking through Hannaford and you're tempted to sexual sin. If you're tempted to lust, if your eyes linger too long, raise your hand in the middle of Hannaford and say, Lord God most high, I'm yours. And I will not take Thread or thong of this, I will not have it. I will only have your blessing. And let the people look at you and point and laugh. As you have put to death sin. And you had lifted up the name of the Lord of righteousness. And you will be blessed. You say you are not a blessing. You're a curse. I will be blessed by God. See, Christ, that's the first of three conclusions I want to make. Christ is plundering captive souls from the kingdom of darkness. This is the second. He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. Believe in him and live in the blessing of his victory. That sounds nice. That's what Abram's doing. He's living in the blessing of the victory that God gave him. More than that, like Abram, take up your cross and fight the good fight. We don't even have to fight the actual battle. We just get to proclaim the victory's won. Listen to to Paul in Acts chapter 26. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Listen to Paul in Acts chapter 26. I think he reflects on this. Beginning in verse 19. You know he's on trial for preaching the gospel. And this is what he says. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. Whoa, that's really close to where the battle took place. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, that's exactly where Abram's standing now, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul read that from Moses, the Pentateuch. So the church is to go, therefore, and plunder souls out of Sodom. Rescue sinners from the curse of death. Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus is plundering souls today. By the truth of his word and the power of his spirit through his church. We're it. We're the Abrahamic plundering machine of good news and salvation. It's us. But you might feel a little intimidated if you look at the cultural and world events around you. And if you do, just remember that God has a way of evening the odds, doesn't he? Melchizedek gave thanks to God who delivered your enemies into your hand. The third and last application is that God is focused on Christ and His church. If you're worried about all the big stuff being done in the world by big people, Christ is focused on God and His church. Don't worry about the world. We're not alone. Brothers and sisters, we're living the plan of God. We're living the plan and purposes of God in our lives. Our God is not consumed with world events. He knows all and His attention is focused on his people. What matters to God is when husbands and wives are so committed to one another that there's no room for sexual sin. What matters to God is when a, when, a, when a Christian mom spanks her little four-year-old for disobedience and a few moments later sets her on her knee and prays for her. What matters to God is when Christian men and women turn in a solid day's work. With a good attitude. What matters to God is the church gathered for worship, for fellowship, in prayer. Those things matter to God Most High. Brothers and sisters, lift up your hand to God Most High. He will bless those who bless you, and He will curse those who curse you. You see, these these 4,000 year old words matter because they're the Word of God. They're the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. And Old Testament words have not grown dull, they still do their work of discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts because they're God's words. We're not hidden from His sight. Rather, we are open and exposed to the eyes of the King of righteousness to whom we must give an account. So let us together raise our hands to the Lord God Most High and pledge allegiance to Him and His blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for this promise. This promise of salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for taking it for granted.